Today we are going to start a, um, a three-part series that we're entitling this, we're entitling called Our Journey. It's going to be our journey about the past, our journey about the present, and our journey about our future at City Harvest Church. Today, usually on, on, on the last Sunday of the, of the month, of a given, uh, last Sunday of December on a given year, the, the lead pastor, you know, casts vision for the upcoming year. And I'm going to pr- break protocol today and not talk about, you know, this year or our future. I'm going to start off by talking about our past. If you're visiting with us today, uh, bear with us as we kind of talk about what this church has been all about and when the influences, even prior to us planning this church, that have impacted this church talking about our past. If you're kind of seeking us out, you're going to learn exactly what kind of a church we're at and what we value and where we're at today. Next week, I'll start talking about 2019 and what I believe uh, in the next couple of years, what we want to accomplish as a church. And then on the 13th, I'm going to be talking about our future. These are going to be three very important sermons uh, when it comes to the life of this church. Let's talk about our journey past you know, a lot of people, they, they don't get something, and that is this. They, they don't get it in modern culture, whether we're talking about someone's present circumstances or we're talking about our nation or we're talking about the church. And that what, they, what they don't get is that the, the past determines the present experience, and the past does determine, in many ways, our future. You know, on, a, on a, just a counseling basis, let's just say you were an abused child growing up. I was an abused child. I'm a, I'm, I'm a poster child for abuse, neglect, and, and intense abuse. And uh, usually what takes place, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases what takes place because of the past, you, you kind of grow into adulthood as a self-loathing, guilt-ridden, overachieving individual. When I was in when high school, uh, I was the toast of all our coaches because they used to have to like kick me out. They used to take the spray. They used to put on guys' ankles, put wrap tape on. They used to spray it on my body to get me out of the weight room, and I, I wouldn't leave. It was achieve, 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 achieve. I was a machine. I was horrible in relationships. I was just into achieving, and I'd be applauded for, look at that kid. That, he went out of a 1,000, but really what was driving me was a lot of very, very unhealthy things that became even more unhealthy in my adulthood. The past affected my present and had I not changed some things it would have affected my future in a great way past does that people don't understand for instance in our own culture we we live everyone here regardless of your political persuasion the one thing we agree on we, we agree on the ideology that all men are created equal and because of that we have this passion for the value and the, and the rights of every individual in the United States of America. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that something that's strong. But it's not true everywhere around the world. Everywhere, everywhere around the world doesn't have the same ethic as we do, the same passion. Sometimes we want to program it into them, but they don't have the past that we have, why they would think that way. And so there's a lot of things that shape that thinking that you, know, you don't even, aren't, aren't even aware of when it comes to the past. Justinian's code back in the 6th century where they established by Roman code that a man is or a woman is innocent until proven guilty. Wow, where'd that come from? That came from something almost 1,500 years ago. Or English common law or the Magna Carta 
or Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, which you probably have never heard. That sounds like a Broadway play. Okay, but you've never heard. It means the law is king. Okay, we, 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 people have never heard in our most sacred documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Whether you know about these things or not, they shape and molded our culture in a present ideology. So you may not like history, but history, you are the fruit of historical thought. You are, the, you are the fruit of historical ideas. You may not like science, but, be, but biological and physiological and physics and geology and all these other scientific laws impact the reality of your world and my world, whether we like it or not. So we have to kind of have to brace some things to understand what is taking place in our, in our life, a church's beliefs, and some of our most sacred traditions and the things that we believe uh, and many Christians you know to fight to the death on they came from church councils and the reformation and scholarship and and uh, the, the Calvinism and the Wesley revivals and and the things that took place in the American frontier and and the great awakening and and even early Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement and what was called today the latter rain movement and all sorts of things that took place in church history impacted the way you and I believe today we just see it. I believe the Bible but you have a framework by what you believe the Bible it's it's, it's infected and impacted your thinking. So I want to start today with Proverbs 22. Now, I do want to just also balance myself in saying there's some things in the past that I got to change in my thinking in the present so my future is not determined by the destruction of my past. You can see this in the book of Jeremiah. I've set you over the nations this day to tear up, to plow, and to destroy, and to uproot, and also to replant. And to build. So some of us, because of our past, we got to be honest with our past, and we got to uproot it, readjust it, so that we can approach a future that's not like our past. How many people remember J.O., our, our first church plant to Coeur d'Alene? Remember that little, little, that little thing he used to do? I've looked into the future, and you look much better than you do right now. Remember that? Okay, okay. okay. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you got to change some things that maybe your past has created a grid in your present your future doesn't have to be determined by your past. So please, I want to qualify myself. But left alone, you got to connect the dots. And so it's true with the church, and this is where we're going today. So I want to start off with a, with a scripture. Did I go off the line here? I thought I, 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 I got pushing a button here. There I am. Okay, I'm back on. I want to, I want to read a scripture out of Proverbs 22. I'm going to read two sections of scriptures here. Proverbs 22, verse 28 says this. Do not move an ancient boundary, an ancient boundary stone which was put in place by your ancestors. Now, boundary stones, we'll get into in a second, were really the glue of the characteristic of Israeli culture in the ancient times. And I want you to know those boundary stones were put there by our ancestors. Another thought. This is Genesis 26 in the life of Isaac. And it says, So the Philistines took dirt and filled up all the wells that his, Isaac's father's servants, had dug back in the days of his father Abraham. They were wells that were Isaac's right that were dug by his father. So Isaac left there, skipping a few little verses here, 
and settled in the Gerar Valley. And Isaac, once again, reopened the wells that had been dug back in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham died. And Isaac gave these wells the same names his father had given them. Notice that Abraham originally dug up these wells. Isaac reopened these wells. And he had to reopen these wells because there was another group of people called the Philistines that filled them up and plugged them up. There's a spiritual parallel to this particular story that I want to get to. But first, let's talk about the ancient boundary stones. What was an ancient boundary stone and why, why was it significant? You know, ancient landmarks or ancient boundary stones were really uh, stones that marked all of the pop property boundaries that were allotted to each Israeli family when they occupied Canaan back 1,500 years before Christ. When they possessed Canaan, every family received a lot of land. It was the glue that held everything together. That particular piece of land where those boundary stones were set, it was yours and your descendants perpetually. You could lose it temporarily through debt, loss, but it would always come back to you and your descendants every jubilee every 50 years. And of course, that was God's bankruptcy program. He got everybody a fresh start, no matter what negative circumstances took place. Isn't that great idea, a great idea? Isn't that the great morality and the nature of God that he gives all of us a new start? And everyone said amen. amen. Okay, he had a new start. But that, those boundary stones marked off that which was rightfully yours and your descendants perpetually forever. In fact, it was your inheritance, and it determined the whole makeup of their nation. You really can't understand many of the, of the civil laws and the moral laws of, of the, the, what's called the Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, unless you understand this thing called boundary stones and how significant it was to the whole makeup of Israel's economy, but also their morality. And so when Ahab's taking somebody's vineyard and he's planting it himself, he's, he's violating the most sacred thing that took place in Israel. And this, what this suggests to us is this, is that the value of every Israelite mattered. It was a, it was, it was a statement that you matter just as much as I matter, that no one has more value than the other man. In fact, the last member of, of Israel's army that got their inheritance in the book of Joshua was Joshua himself. He didn't get his inheritance. He didn't get his, his property until every Israelite got theirs. The value of every individual person in Israel. It says a lot to us. For some reason, I just keep getting knocked off of this. Uh, oh, there, I'm back on again. Okay. Is, it, is it changing up here behind me? Okay, if it is, just wave at me like it went offline again. It was their inheritance. Now, applied spiritually, church, we have stones of truth that have been established in the church. There have been stones of truth that have been given to us from its conception. And those stones really determine the very nature of the church and will determine if the church is going to fulfill its mission. It's like Israel is not to move their landmarks. We're not to move the stones that God has established in the church. Sometimes at City Harvest Church over the last 21 years, people 
have gotten frustrated with me and a little impatient with me, that maybe I don't jump on the, the next thing or the next trend just uh, gullibly or quickly or just buy into it and think it's exciting. And the reason being is because I'm a, I'm a stone examiner. Is this trend removing a stone or is it, it, or is it establishing and strengthening a stone? If it's removing a stone, I'm not going to buy into it. I don't care what testimonies are on the cover of some magazine or who says what. A stone is getting removed. And if it's getting removed, it will eventually lead to the church's death. We can't remove the stones of truth God's established. Remember, we had our first prophetic assembly. If you're new to us, we believe that God speaks, like Yana brought a great prophetic word today to the church, encouraging us that we're bearers of God's presence and and that he loves us and he's doing a great work in our life. And uh, it goes right along with what I'm going to share today. But uh, uh, we have people, men and women, who have great prophetic gifts. We bring in as guest ministry. He knows very little about the people in the church, sometimes little about our church. And remember back in about 2001, we brought David Hubert from, from British Columbia. David is a wonderful prophet of God. And he knew me but not well. And he didn't know our church at all. When he came here, he said to me privately, he said, you know, when I was praying about coming, the one thing that the Lord showed me is that the, the pastor of this church is committed to the foundational truth of the doctrines of Christ. And that, that is a very important foundation in this particular church. I didn't share it publicly, but it confirmed me that I wasn't just being obnoxious and stubborn and pig-headed that there were certain stones that couldn't get moved. It's been the key to our success, uh, how we have not floated off the map being Pentecostal charismatic believers. Now, what about, what about wells? Let's talk about, let's talk about wells. Why were, why were wells so important in ancient times? And and really, what does that represent to us today? What were about these wells that Isaac dug up and, and Abraham established, and why were the Philistines clogging them out? Well, listen, I think we all know, we don't have to be biology majors to know, without water, we die. Water throughout the scriptures speaks of the life of the Spirit of God and the life of the presence of God and the life of the believer. Jesus, when he was speaking about the Spirit in your life and my life, he used the metaphor of water. All those who are thirsty, John 7, come to me and I'll give them drink. And out of their innermost being and in the inner person will flow rivers of, of living water. It speaks of the water of life, Revelation 22, the Johannine writings. It, it speaks of life. Water speaks of life because the natural water does bring life to us. And in an ancient arid climate, you, ha you got water one of three ways. You got it from a natural spring. Now, Isaac wouldn't have rights to those springs because he was a nomad. He was a, he was a stranger. He was a, basically a guest in Canaan. So was his father, and so would his sons be after him. Okay? It was something they weren't going to possess at that time. He was a nomad, so he had no right to the springs. You could create a cistern. Basically, you dig a hole in the ground, you plaster it, and you collect water, but you know, water that's still and water that's old, heated by the sun and has flies and bugs and 
animal stuff and mud and everything else. It's, it's really not the best tasting water around. It's not refreshing. And of course, God used that as a, even a metaphor in, through the prophets of the Old Testament that the people of God had chosen something inferior to the fountain he wanted to offer them. They went and built out their own cisterns called idols, self-sufficiency, independence. And the last option you had was to dig a well. Now, by the language in Genesis, if you dug a well, it was your right to that water. Abraham dug wells. What was happening is Isaac was prospering in Genesis 26. He was prospering, but to stop him from prospering, the Philistines came and they plugged up the wells with dirt and clods. Sometimes they would put dead carcasses in the wells and you know, decaying animals. And, and uh, we found a dead rat the other day, and it was really fun, and my wife and I. And, of course, we had a discussion who was going to pick it up. But... Uh, <laughs> Neither one of us. We found a shovel. Anyway, that's, uh, it was a big dead rat, too. The big, uh, big dead buddy. Anyway, I got... Can you imagine one of those being in the water you drink? And so the Philistines are plugging this up, so Isaac keeps digging up, digging up these wells that is his right... That, uh, that tapped into the springs and the rivers underneath the ground that they were plugging up. You know, there's great water down there. I remember being in Rome on our 30th anniversary, and I was just dying of thirst in the humidity of a Mediterranean climate in late June. And, and uh, so I'm going to drink one of these fountain water out of one of these fountains in Rome, and I'm just bracing myself for this horrible-tasting city water. And as soon as I, my lips touched that water, it was some of the most refreshing water I had ever drunk. And... Uh, before in my life. There's great fountains and, and water streams underneath the city of Rome. And, uh, you know, there's, there's great water down there, life. Of course, the water brings us life naturally. So what's the spiritual application? There are, there are truths. There are truths that our mothers and fathers in the faith have dug up for us that because of those truths, we've encountered God in unique ways that has transformed our life and empowered the church, transformed our families, transformed the people we love and made us more effective in being witnesses for Christ. They dug those things. They dug those truths. Some of them paid a great price for those particular truths. My father in the faith, Dick Iverson, there were years where everybody in Portland wouldn't talk to him, only for the latter part of his ministry to be one of the most respected men in the city of Portland, in the Church of Jesus. They paid prices for digging these wells. And those, what they dug up in that truth is, is brought life to you and I, just like a well would bring refreshing to somebody in a hot, arid climate. Now, the question is, what is one of Satan's main strategies then against God's church? Well, we saw in this particular, particular picture is that the Philistines kept clogging up the wells. They kept throwing things in there. They kept plugging up with dirt and stones and probably dead carcasses. And, of course, that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to take the wells of truth in your life, and he wants to fill it with his dirt and his stones and his dead carcasses, direct the very water of God's Spirit, and as it would renew you. And that has to do with the things that you do that you believe. 
And so he distracts us with things like, I want to live for my image, or I want to live to, to collect things and, and materialism. You, do, you don't have to be rich to be materialistic, and you can be very, very rich and be non-materialistic. But we could be trapped by the things that we see and fear. We see, we see and feel. And uh, we can be distracted by that. You can be distracted by ambition. You can be distracted by skepticism. You can be distracted by wrong doctrine. They th the enemy just throws in all this stuff to steal the life of the water of truth that God wants us to experience and walk in. And so we've got to make sure that we keep the wells of our fathers, the wells of our mothers, and we keep those wells completely open. The enemy comes, clogs them up, we got to unclog them back up so we can experience the life of the Spirit. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to just give you a quote here by Bible teacher Kevin Connor. A church is only as powerful as the truth it believes. So what truth do we believe will determine how much we experience that truth. If you don't believe the truth, you're not going to experience that truth. Whether we're talking about healing, we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, talking about a victorious church reaching its mission and reaching people with the gospel, whatever our belief system in truth will determine what we experience. So we're only as powerful as the truth we possess. So what the enemy wants to do, he wants to clog up the wells of truth that have been dug up for us by those who have come before us. So let's understand a thing called DNA, naturally. DNA. DNA naturally is this, in your cells. DNA is this. It's the carrier of genetic information in the cell that determines the characteristics or qualities of someone or something. You are the product of your DNA. There are certain things that were predetermined in your conception of what you experience now in your physical or personality makeup. You know, I just did, I did Ancestry.com. Pete, Timmy, and I were talking Friday about our Croatian roots and, you know, and looking at, he had our phones out trying to look at our data and what we are. But uh, he and I are both come from a Croatian background, and, and I was proud to say I'm a little bit more Eastern European than he is. But, uh, but uh, when, when part of being Croatian, and people think I'm Scottish, actually I may not have any Scotch in me. I have no Scotch. I didn't drink any Scotch last night, but I, <laughs> but I, have, I have no Scottish that may not be. I, my grandfather changed his name from Smith to McGregor to get on the stage in Broadway. And uh, long story, came back with two wives. Anyway, but, uh, it's, a great, it's a great family tree. You ought you to just look at it sometime. But, uh, um, but I am mostly Eastern European. I'm 37% Eastern European. I'm Croatian. And Croatian had engagement with the Mongols of Genghis Khan and the Mongols and the Chinese coming over. And uh, because of that, I am 2% Asian. I always wanted to be a minority. Anyway, but, uh, when Julia was born, it was the funniest thing, because when Julia was born, you thought we adopted a baby from Korea or, or Japan or China, and everybody saw the, her baby picture, like, what's this all about? Like, you know almost questioning if I were the father, you know, it's, uh, you know, just, it just, it just, she, because our eyes are, have the influence of Asia in us, okay, DNA determines your characteristics, and, uh, just the way it is, we all have it, well, that's what's true in the natural, but what is spiritual DNA? 
because we have a spiritual DNA also. And that is this. It's the truth and values of the past that determines a church's present truths, values, and vision. It's those values and truths and vision that have been given to us from the past that determine who we are. You say, well, Bob, I just like being led by the Spirit. Well, it's, it's a little bit deeper than that. It's a little bit deeper than that. So closing this down, what is our spiritual DNA? Bringing this home to us, dealing with our past here. I'm going to just give you seven things that our DNA is. First, it's the book of Acts. Now, there's a fancy theological term I want to give you, and you can use it on each other and practice your vocabulary, and I feel like I just got smarter, okay? And that is this, that uh, we are called continuationists. Okay, everyone say that with me. Continuationists. What does that mean? That means we believe that what we read about in the book of Acts in the apostles' doctrine and their dedication to teaching and the first witnesses of Christ, the apostles, how they practice church and living life together and sharing their life together in, in community and burning with a mission called the Great Commission, along with the power of God's presence that manifested in angelic in, uh, intervention and miracles of provision and miracles of healings and what's known as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, started in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., wherever your calendar is at, based on a, a monk who messed around with the calendar years ago. Okay? And, and it started there, and it continues even to this day. So we believe what we read about in the book of Acts is a pattern by how we should do church. I'm part of a group and that was called MFI, and, but we, 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 we tried to change it to A2, because we wanted to get a modern name, but it had some international reactions, so we just name all our conferences A2, A2 Conference, A2 Conversations, or our little regionals. And the reason being is because we want to go back to Acts chapter 2 is our foundational pattern by which we want to build churches on, the emphasis of that. And so that's what City Harvest Church is. We're, we're an Acts church. Now, some people believe that you can't establish doctrine by the book of Acts. You, you can't look at the book of Acts and establish any form of doctrine about that. But the problem with that particular argument is that the book of Acts is the book that describes the original acts of the Holy Spirit. How many people know that the Spirit and the Word are one? The Spirit and the Word are one. And we see teaching in the book of Acts that reflects apostolic teaching that's in harmony with the epistles that Paul wrote. And we see the way they did church and the way they did mission and how they ministered the gospel. Jesus patterned that stuff for them. In fact, Jesus patterned church. He had public ministry. He had private ministry. He did one-on-one. -on -one, he did multitudes. He, he patterned ministry. He came, he taught, he proclaimed the gospel, and he healed the sick. There was three dimensions of his ministry that he did. He patterned ministry. And so we look at that and we say that's a pattern for us today. The book of Acts is, gives us the ingredients. We see his love. We see his nature. Uh, we, we see his presence, his miracles, and therefore the way they did church is our pattern today. That's part of our DNA. The second, I'm going to rush you forward about 1,900 years close to in church history, and we have roots in this called Azusa. I'm going to show you a little picture of the apostolic faith mission, one of the photographs of where they had a great revival back in 1906 that went all the way through 1909, three and a half years of a prayer meeting that they met three times a day 
but when they weren't in the meetings, they went upstairs, a two-story building, and they prayed. That went continually for 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, for three and a half years. People came from all over the world to hear about what was taking place in a livery stable that basically their pulpit was shoeboxes stacked up and they had basically barrels with benches and sawdust floor and yet God, just like he came in a manger, he filled that place with his glory. We sang last week at Come to Bethlehem, okay? This is where God hung out. And of course, the, the particular emphasis of this particular revival that caught everyone's interest, yes, was a thing called speaking in tongues and a thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But more than that, more than even that, was the manifestation of God's tangible presence. The idea of his presence manifesting, what the Puritans called Coram Deo, the manifest presence of God, was there. People who grew up as children there later on described that they would be a glory cloud that would fill the, fill the, um, the, the sanctuary. They held about 1,200 people, by the way, and it would fill it but I always thought it was kind of something from the ceiling down. It was actually something from the floor up, like the Scottish moors, you know, there's this fog. And, and children played hide-and-go-seek in it. That's a, you know, if you're going to go play hide-and-go-seek, you might as well play hide-and-go-seek in the glory of God. <laughs> and many of those children grew up in shook nations, became famous missionaries, and uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was a powerful time, powerful time. Great things took place. They had there what they called the God Zone. They... People would get off the train at Union Station in downtown L.A. and literally get knocked over by the power of God, fall on their face and cry out for salvation, get baptized in the Holy Spirit, get physically healed within the zone of the place itself. There were fires cited by people on top of the roof. The fire department visited this place, the, the ancient Los Angeles fire department, on many occasions where the chief of the fire department got out with William Seymour, a man who had one eye, he was the son of emancipated slaves. And by the way, this particular revival was an was a interracial revival that had people from all races in the world in one place. This is 1906, folks. Segregation, Jim Crow laws had no place here. There were no color lines. The blood took it all away. One body, one church, all nations, all people. So Seymour got out with the fire chief and saw fire burning from the top of the from the roof, just like the burning bush story. He said, well, I, uh, I didn't, well, it was something else. Moses maybe ate some mushrooms or something up there in the mountain. Okay, no, 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 it happened in 1906, 7, 8, 9, it was constant. And when those manifestations occurred, they had the greater miracles take place there. There's two testimonies, one of a man that had no leg, and from his stump all the way in front of everybody, it grew all the way to one big leg and foot. That would be kind of a fun miracle to see. Another man who had an arm missing from the stump, a whole arm and a hand grew. And uh, they, the walls were filled with wheelchairs and braces and crutches and all sorts of paraphernalia of the, of the demonstration of God's Spirit. And they took this message global. Now, they made some great mistakes out of their zeal. They thought because they spoke in tongues, they could just go without training to nations and start preaching uh, the gospel. But... Uh, uh, they would get there and they wouldn't be able to learn the language. But some did. Some su supernaturally began to preach the gospel and continued to in a language they didn't understand and people got saved worldwide. But it affected the world. The world was touched. They predict today there's some 500 million 
Pentecostal charismatic Christians in the world today, worldwide. This is our DNA. I want to say this is our DNA. Another movement that, that took place, took place right post-World War II. It was called the Latter Rain Movement in, the, in church historical context. Latter Rain Movement really was a, a birth of a cry for more, especially out of God's church. It was a tough time. It was post-World War II. The church had been really beat up. Missionaries martyred and killed as they were caught behind enemy lines in the whole international conflict. You're talking about a church that witnessed the death of millions of people in a six-year period. I mean, we get upset, you know, 100 people get killed someplace, and which is tragic enough. How would, you, how would you like to see some 30 million people killed in a six-year period? The atomic bomb was dropped. Communism was on the rise. I mean, I mean, common conversation when I was in high school, and all you boomers can agree with me, was how we were going to die by an atomic bomb. So when I was seven years old in the playground, we talked about how we were going to die. Now, how would you like your children coming home from school talking about what we do in the playground today? We sat around talking about how we were going to die. We had atomic bomb drills. Okay, this was, a, this was a unique time, and the church was crying out for power. And, and what God did, God began to breathe on the church, and he, one of the things he did is he started raising up men and women that had an incredible gift in the area of healing. Now, this got abused, and and went into money greed, and went into double lifestyles, and immorality, and everything else, but, uh, 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 and, and people started competing with each other, who had the biggest tent, who had the biggest crowd, who had the biggest miracles, and, but, the, but the power of God was present to heal. I have so many people have mentored me who are eyewitnesses of all that took place, and personal recipients themselves. God moved in a great way, on top of that, all of a sudden, there was truths being birthed about the way you worship today called psalmic worship or Davidic worship and Davidic worship and a Davidic worship, lifting our hands and lifting our voices and singing free praise and, and, and just offering our praise to God. The Pentecostals called it the heavenly choir. Also, there was an emphasis that we still have apostles today. that have, They're not like the 12 apostles of the Lamb, but they're apostles who, who help plant churches and help leaders get stronger and, and strengthen them around the world. And there's prophets who represent the heart and the mind of God, that these things are for the church today. All these came out of this particular movement. So in the middle of that came a guy named T.L. Osborne. So I'm going to take that and I'm going to start narrowing it down to us. And what does T.L. Osborne have to do with City Harvest Church. T.L., by the way, is Tommy Lee Osborne. Tommy Lee Osborne from Oklahoma. And uh, wasn't even a high school graduate. And uh, there's a wonderful picture of Tommy Lee. And, uh, but uh, had a mission burden, went to India with his wife, Daisy. Didn't have a whole lot of fruit, but he started discovering the New Testament, that God gave us certain patterns in the New Testament. He just began to believe the New Testament was for me. What I read in the New Testament is for us today. Not for another time, it's for us today. And he went to a crusade in 1947 right here in Portland with my father in the faith, Dick Iverson, who was attending his church in Portland with his parents. I think uh, Brother Dick was 17 years old, 18 years old at the time. And in this particular meeting, there was a man by the name of William Branham, a man who claimed an angel came to him in 1946. Now, one of the unique things, and I've seen many video footages of William Branham, talked with many people who knew him, is that he moved in a, a revelation word of knowledge in a, such a deep place that I don't, think it's, I don't think it's been paralleled yet in modern times, in, in our time, the 21st century. 
He would know your name, your address, where you're at, what was taking place. I have stories after stories after stories of William Branham, of how he just read people's mails. And of course, Ern Baxter, his traveling teacher, with five years, he says, I never saw him miss a prophetic word one time. He says, I won't start ministering until I see the angel. When the angel came, healing started taking place all through the building. Well, in Portland, there's my father in the faith, Dick Iverson, along with T.L. Osborne, hungering for more of God. A big, giant man came stomping in the meeting when William Brown was on the platform, and he started screaming at him, you're a phony, you're a fake. All of a sudden, uh, the police were going to kind of rise up and arrest him, and he, he backed off the police. The man was cussing at him and screaming at him. Brandon was a little 5'6 guy, a little tiny guy, just, just coming at him, and the pastors on the platform were coming to believe, be bodyguards. He says, please sit down. And this guy was cussing at, yelling at William Branham, and William Branham just softly through his breath said, you have cursed the servant of the Most High God. You will now bow before God that calmly. And the man, Brother Dick, it was like the Wicked Witch of the West melting with water, you know, and the Wizard of Oz, he just, he just started saying stuff less and less. Finally, he was at William Branham's feet, weeping and wailing in repentance. When T.L. Osborne saw that, he went back home and went back to the drawing board. Brother Dick was impacted the rest of his life. And what T.L. Osborne did, I'm going to come out and I'm going to, I'm going to stand on the word of God. And he launched a ministry of healing. He was, had a missionary heart, so he went to India and Thailand. And you know, the churches we work with in East Africa were all impacted and birthed out of T.L. Osborne's healing crusades. It went from Mabasa all the way into the Inlone and to the Maasai people. Mass healings. In Java, 200,000 Muslims gave their life to Jesus at one time because I saw in the heavens a vision at the same time of Jesus in the clouds, and they all gave their life to Jesus at once, 200,000 people. He touched the world, touched the world with great faith. Tad Oldenburg, you remember Tad Oldenburger, his father-in-law, Pizza Mai's father-in-law, father was a crippled man in Thailand, and Thailand he got healed under T.L. Osborne's ministry from paralysis, and he traveled the jungles the rest of his life preaching the gospel in Thailand. The world was affected. Well, Dick Iverson saw this, and he, he parted from him. He started his own healing ministry uh, of faith. In fact, I remember one time that uh, a man came to me at, at church, and, and he says, my, I'm taking my daughter to OHSU tomorrow for surgery. She's just a baby. She has some opening in her heart, and she needs to quite require surgery. Would you pray? So I asked Brother Dick to pray with me and anoint with oil. I remember it was just a simple 30-second prayer, but it was... He had such authority. We prayed, and they went off, and never from the guy. I, went, I always wonder, in the back of my mind, whatever happened to that? And two years later, he found me in the church's parking lot. I never got back to you to tell you. We, we went the next day to the hospital, and they kind of did some more tests, and all the holes and all the, everything was damaged, and the tissue was just all, it was perfect, completely healed. God, God is a healer. He's a healer. This affects us. This affects us because you've got to believe that God is still a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, regardless of the contradictions, that we can contend for the promises of God. If we're going to see healing, we've got to believe God will still heal today. Well, and this is our DNA. Say, this is our DNA. I'm going to introduce you to another character here. Well, that guy's got a collar on. His name is Father Dennis Bennett. 
Dennis Bannon was an Episcopalian priest who got a hold of the Holy Spirit back in 1960, got himself in serious trouble with the denomination he was in. He pastored one of the largest churches in the denomination in Van Nuys, California. They shipped him away out of embarrassment to Seattle because he experienced, he went public, that experienced this experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was just felt compelled to preach his message in a little mission church up there in Ballard, Washington. And before you knew it, people came by the hundreds and thousands every Friday night to hear his story from Catholic backgrounds, from Methodist backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, Lutheran backgrounds. And they started just getting filled with the Holy Spirit and took that germ around the world. Sue and I both gave our life to Jesus and were baptized in the Holy Spirit under this man's ministry. He had about three degrees. He was brilliant. He spoke like three languages. And he really had a way of dealing with denominational people, bringing them into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I was deeply impacted. I've always had a heart for the body of Christ because I saw how God used the body of Christ, the full body of Christ, to touch the world, not just one local church. And of course... Dick Iverson in Bible Temple, when we ride there in 1982, Brother Dick was a, an incredible uh, evangelist in his time. Wrigley's, believe it or not, have some of his miracles posted, and, and, um, and uh, God's done a, a number of things with him in the area of healing ministry around the world, and, but God dealt with him in the height of his ministry about the church, and his father had a heart attack and wanted him to take over his little church in Portland, Oregon and not travel anymore, and he wanted to get rid of his church. He tried for five years, according to his testimony, to get rid of his church. And then one day, a man came into his church by the name of Ernest Gentile. You guys remember Ernest Gentile? And while he's sitting there frustrated and angry about his call and missing the call of God in his life to the nations, Ernest Gentile stood him up and says, Pastor, I have a word for you. Now, no pastor wants what I'm going to say said in front of your whole church. He said, Pastor, the frustration that you're experiencing in your heart is birthed by your own evil. The problem is not the people. The problem is you. Now, how would you like that to be said to you in front of your whole church? He went home and examined his heart, and, he, and really what he discovered is he didn't love God's people. For 15 years, Sue and I sat under his ministry, and... Uh, Raised our family there in their younger years. And uh, I'm let you carry this. I'm freezing up here on my, on my iPad here. So uh, let's see what goes on here. We, we sat under his leadership. He built a great church. He grabbed a hold of worship and the presence of God. He grabbed a hold of leadership with integrity. Leadership that loved the people of God above everything else. I mean, when we were pastors on that staff, there wasn't, you guys buckle your seatbelt, in a church of about 2,500, there wasn't a baby shower that, where my wife didn't have to be there. There wasn't a wedding that we could just say we're not going to attend. Wherever the people are, you are. That was the rule. There, the, if the people are there, that's where you're going to be. He taught us to love the people. It was always about the people before you, the people before you, the people before you. He believed the word of God in doctrine and establishing good doctrine in the church. He said, all spirit you blow up, all doctrine you dry up, word in the spirit you grow up. Okay, that was his big motto. I learned much from Dick Iverson. Lastly is Global Harvest World Map and Floyd McClung. And I want to mention Floyd McClung. Here is Floyd, who, by the way, is in a coma right now. 
Floyd McClung was the, was the um, I want you guys to take over on, on this because I'm going in and out on my iPad here. Floyd McClung was a Central Asian director for YWAM. And uh, he had established two great works, one in Afghanistan and one in Amsterdam, the red light district, where he salvaged many, many prostitutes and just he wrote a book called Living on the Devil's Doorsteps where he invaded that particular area, but he was disenchanted with the, with the incompleteness of YWAM's mission because they weren't establishing good local churches, that he became a local church pastor himself. And that's when I came into relationship with Floyd. I had already gone to a, a ministry called World Map, World Missionary Assistance Plan, from the time I was converted to Christ in 1976. And World Map trained leaders around the world and uh, saw great revivals because they trained leaders. And, and I was captured by this thing called the mission of God. The Great Commission grabbed me. Jesus said, the harvest is what? Is ready, but what's few? The workers are few, and that was their motto. And so that was already in me. But what Floyd did is Floyd taught me about a thing called contextualization. Contextualization simply means us preaching the gospel well in the context of culture. That the way we do church, you can't do in some place like Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan or Afghanistan. You're not going to be able to do church that way. So you've got to take away what is culture and what is church what is methodology, and what is truth. And he really helped me. He really helped me through this and, and thinking it through that really what's going to happen worldwide globally is simple churches in, in ways that could operate fast and small and unnoticed around the world that have, yes, apostolic foundation and has the Holy Spirit and has truth, but they kind of work and they work fast and light. They work underground. I can't even say to you publicly on tape some of the things we do internationally, but the reason why we do them internationally is because of Floyd's heart and his, and his wisdom. And so this is what we are. This is City Harvest Church. Church that's been impacted by the book of Acts. Church has been impacted by great movements like the Azusa Revival, the Latter Rain Move of the Spirit of God. Charismatic movement, Father Dennis Bennett, and how I was impacted by that. My wife was greatly impacted by that. How Dick Iverson and his love for the church and building a great local church on the word, the presence of God, and integrous leadership that loved people. To the absolute passion of reaching the nations of the earth. That's why we have a global impact board. That's why we do $300,000 a year in missions here. That's why we raise people up to send them out. That's why we do all these crazy things that we've done. All these things, because of all these great people in my life, influenced me and impacted you either through me or from them directly, has determined who we are. Our future has been postured by our past. And what we do presently is influenced by that. Now, that doesn't mean God can't do more. God can't add on to that. But I'm going to say this. We can't take the stone and move it. And we can't take the well and fill it up with dead carcasses and mud and stone. We got to, like Isaac, redig up the wells. Redig up the wells and let the encounter of God's presence and power refresh and renew us.